If you've been with us in recent weeks, you know that we're working our way through the letter of James. And we've come this morning to chapter 1, we're still in chapter 1, and I'm going to read from verse 13 to verse 18. Let's all stand again to hear God's word. Remember, uh, James chapter 1, verse 13 through to verse 18. James says, Let no one say when he is tempted that I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he was carried away and enticed by his own lusts. Then, when his lust conceives, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing given, and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. God bless his word as we consider that. Please be seated. Before we look at those words, let's come to God in prayer. Father, again, we turn to your word, and in doing so, we turn to you. And we thank you. We thank you that we can learn, we thank you that we can grow, we thank you that we can mature as a result of your word in our lives. Most of all though, we thank you that we can honour you more meaningfully, that we can honour you as our Lord and our God. And we pray that that will be the end result of our time together this morning, that we are drawn nearer to you, and also that you will open my mouth to speak your word for your glory. Amen. So we're looking at this uh, passage here, James chapter 1, verse 13 to 18, and particularly verse 14, which says, Everyone is tempted. I didn't really need to tell you that, because you know everyone is tempted. It's a common experience for every human being who's ever lived. Uh, Paul says in uh, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13, that all temptations are common to all mankind. In other words, everyone is tempted. Same thing. And we all face the battle of temptation. And James says, how we deal with it is a mark of the genuineness of our faith, or indeed, the lack of our faith. We saw last week that in chapter 1 verse 2 to 12, we see a test of genuine faith, and it is trials. So the first test that James gives us of how we should respond and how it can show that we are genuinely strong in the Lord, we are genuinely saved, is how we face trials. That's what we were looking at. But also, James now goes on to say how we deal with temptation is also a test of genuine faith. It can also cause us to grow, to mature as Christians. Now I'm sure that I don't have to tell you that generally people who are not Christians, non-Christians, don't really accept the blame for their own sinfulness. And most of the time they don't even accept that they're sinful in the first place. But when they are tempted and fall into sin, it's very typical to put the blame somewhere else. Could be anywhere. Could be society. Could be your parents. Could be your circumstances. But generally people tend to blame their sinfulness on other things. Children come into the world refusing to accept responsibility for their own behaviour. That's where it all starts. We're born like this. The first time you reprimand a child for doing something, if they think they can get away with it, their reaction will be, well, I didn't do it. And what they're really saying by that is, you know, prove it. 
See if you can prove it, because I, I'm not going to admit it. If you can catch me, if you can prove it, then obviously I've got no leg to stand on. But at the moment, um, I, I'm just going to say I didn't do it. Accepting the full responsibility for weakness and temptation is not something that people do very well. Now in this passage, James is saying, how you respond to temptation and where you put the blame is another indicator of the genuineness of your faith, or indeed the lack of it. And the change from the the first passage that we saw last week from verses 12 to 13, it's an obvious change for James because he's been talking about trials and he's just said that the person who endures trials is blessed. Those trials we learned last week are the outward circumstances that test our faith, that come into our lives, difficulties, problems, they come to everyone. But those trials can also become temptations, depending on how we respond to them. So this is an obvious transition for James. He's now moving on to temptation, because if you respond wrongly to trials, the trials can then become a temptation. And then rather than being a means to spiritual growth, they become a solicitation to evil, attempting you to do something wrong. Every single difficult thing that comes into your life either will strengthen you, because you obey God and you stay confident in his care and his power or they will tempt you to doubt God to deny his word to disobey him and therefore you've fallen into evil so everything that you face has the opportunity in the sense to become one and the other you can either be strengthened and you grow or you can just fall into temptation the difference is how you respond to them if you respond to any trial with obedience then it's a means to spiritual growth. If you respond to any trial or difficulty in your life with disobedience, then it's turned into a temptation and you've already begun to fall. So every trial has a potential to become a temptation depending on your response. That's why James now moves from trials which can lead to growth and blessing to temptation which can cause sin and death. Really requires a decision. Everything that you go through in life, every difficulty you face, every problem that you go through, you immediately then, as you face it, you have a decision. You can listen to the voice that says, you know, be disobedient to God, you know, just don't do what God wants you to do, do go, go the easy way. You fall into sin. And if you do fall into sin, there is a question that you need to ask yourself. Whose fault is that? Is it God's fault because he's allowed you to go through that trial? Is it the fault of your circumstances? Is it the fault that you've been created by God that the way you are and you you can't help it? Whose fault is it when you do something that you shouldn't do? When you sin? When you disobey God? That's the issue. Who is it to blame for the temptation to sin? That's the heart of this passage. And it's absolutely essential because it's something as old as sin itself. Right back in the very beginning, when Adam and Eve sinned, we see in Genesis 3 verse 11, they tempted to distrust God, they distrusted God, they distrusted what he said, they sinned. God then spoke to Adam, it says in verse 9, and he says to Adam, where are you? I mean, he wasn't really asking for information. He knew exactly where Adam was, and he knew exactly what he was doing, but he wanted Adam to admit it. And Adam says, well, I heard your voice in the garden. I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. And then God, in verse 11, says, who told you that you were naked? Again, God knew who told him. He's asking Adam to admit it. And Adam says, well, you know, the woman... 
she told me to eat of the tree. Immediately, what does Adam do? He doesn't take the full responsibility, he blames Eve. Or more specifically, what he's doing there, he's blaming God because he says, the woman you gave me. In other words, you gave me her. And she's the one that made me do this. It's the woman's fault, but actually more specifically, he's blaming God. The woman you gave me. And Adam wasn't the only one, because notice in verse 13, God then turns to Eve and he says, what have you done? What does Eve do? She immediately blames Satan. She's a victim just like Adam. And again, she's really blaming God, because he's allowed the serpent in the garden in the place, in the first place. So Adam blames Eve, Eve blames a certain, and the joke is a certain punt, uh, didn't have a leg to stand on. So, it's all God's fault. God made me do it. God made me the way I am. God made me with my sinfulness. God made me in my circumstances. It's not my fault. We even see that in the Old Testament. The people of Israel in Isaiah 63 verse 17 says, Oh Lord, why did you make us wander from your ways and harden our hearts so that we do not fear you? Now that is a cop out, isn't it? Why did you make us disobey you? It's your fault, God. We do that. We're all tempted. We will all sin. But we do have a tendency, not necessarily to blame God directly, but to blame anybody but ourselves. And that's why James says here in verse 13, when you're tempted, don't say that it's because of God. Whenever you're tempted, don't say that God's tempting you. That's an exhortation, really. Forbidding you to blame God. Robert Burns, a Scottish poet, once wrote, Thou knowest thou hast formed me with passions wild and strong, and listening to their witching voice has often led me wrong. And Robert Burns there, he's, he's saying what people have believed throughout the centuries. God made me with passions wild and strong, therefore, what does he expect? I'm bound to do something wrong. That's the way he's made me. It's not really my fault. God's fault. Even the Jewish rabbis of ancient times believed this. They called mankind's evil impulse a yetzahara, which is um, the evil impulse as opposed to the good impulse in, in humans. And they argued, many of them argued, that because God had created everything, he must have also have created this evil impulse. Therefore, once again, it's God's fault. And we get rabbinical sayings like, God said, it repents me that I created this evil tendency in mankind, for if I had not done so, he wouldn't have rebelled against me. So they're putting words into the mouth of God, saying that God there, he even admits his mistake, he accepts the blame for our sins, and he even repents of it. Again, it's God's fault. Ancient belief that God is responsible for our temptation, therefore he's responsible for our sin. That is complete blasphemy. And James absolutely forbids such a thought. And James also implies that someone who really knows God will have a meekness and a brokenness about their own sin and they wouldn't ever think about blaming God. They would accept responsibility for their own sin. Notice in verse 13 it says of. Now that's what you call a present partive participle. That just basically means that it's a continual process. It's going on and on and on. But it's a really interesting thing there because there are two Greek words that can be translated by. No one can be tempted by God. One is apo and one is hupo. One means the one directly doing it, who's actually tempting you, and it's definitely them doing it. 
The other is remote, meaning the one who is sort of not actually doing it, but is indirectly responsible. And it's that second one that James used. He says, no one should say that I'm being tempted by God even indirectly. Never mind that he's deliberately doing it and he's the one responsible. But even indirectly, even if he's the indirect cause, you shouldn't even say that. You shouldn't say it's God who caused these things to happen to me, although he doesn't personally tempt me. He's still the one responsible. James is saying, don't even say that. You see, it's unusual for someone to say that God is directly tempting me to do something wrong. But it is quite common for people to say, well, God made the situation, God let me be in that situation, God made me the way I am, therefore he's not directly doing it, but he is actually responsible. He's indirectly to blame. But James is saying, don't even say that he's indirectly to blame. Don't even say that he's responsible at a distance, because he isn't. The fact is, escaping responsibility of sin is a, it's a favourite human pastime. We'd rather blame anyone but ourselves. We'd rather blame anyone. But let us actually face the facts. James says, no, don't blame anyone and certainly don't blame God. Now to support that, in verse 13, what he does, he gives us five proofs that God is not responsible for temptation and therefore he's not responsible for sin. Five proofs, and I want to look at those five proofs this morning. The first one that we see is in verse 13. He says, and it's really the indirect cause, Don't let anyone say that you're tempted by God, even indirectly, for God cannot be tempted, he says, with evil, and he himself tempts no one. That's the reason why. You can't say that God's responsible because God can't be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Now the, the false gods, the pagan gods of, throughout history, have always been liable to temptation. When you read about the false gods, the Greek gods, the Roman gods, the gods of ancient Asia, all the deities of paganism, you always see them being liable to temptation, to evil. You quite often see them sinning, and you quite often see them tempting others, even though they are allegedly gods. And the reason for that, obviously, is because all false gods are the creations of the minds of fallen people, and they're just really a product of the minds of fallen people, therefore they are open to sin. Their character is corrupt, the human creators are corrupt, therefore no stream can rise higher than its source. But James is saying here, unlike the false gods, the one true God cannot be tempted with evil. And the word there means not even experienced an evil. He's not even experienced in it. He has no capacity, he has no vulnerability to evil. No evil at all can find a place in God's holy character because it's infinitely apart from the holiness of God. We see that all the way through the Old Testament. It says in Leviticus 19 verse 2, the Lord is holy. Now holy means perfect, unable to sin. In fact, it's Isaiah it says that God is holy, holy. Holy. He says it three times to really stress it. He's not just holy. He's not just holy, holy. He's holy, holy, holy. We even see that in the New Testament. 1 Peter 1 verse 16, the Lord is holy. And true holiness cannot ever be penetrated by sin. In fact, it says in Habakkuk 1 verse 13, you are of purer eyes than to even behold evil. You can't even look upon it. 
So that's God. He is so pure. He's so holy. He can't even look upon sin. He can't even look upon evil. He's too pure. It's impossible, therefore, for him to be ever tempted or to tempt anybody else. To tempt somebody else would indicate that he delighted seeing somebody do evil. He can't do that because he's holy. He does allow temptation into our lives for various reasons to cause us to grow, cause us to mature. But he doesn't cause the temptation. He allows us to go through difficult things for a purpose. But he doesn't cause those difficult things. And he never allows us, we're told, to face more than we're able to bear. He always gives us the strength. He always gives us the ability to get through it. That's why we cry to God whenever we go through a difficult circumstance. So that's the first reason that James gives. He he says you, you can't blame God for your sin. He's holy. He's perfect. He can't even be tempted himself. And he can't even look upon evil. So there's no way that he would tempt you to do it. Then he goes on to another point. The second reason or proof that God is not responsible for temptation and therefore for sin is the nature of humankind. He says in verse 14, But every person is tempted when he is drawn away by his own lusts and enticed. There's the fact that temptation doesn't come from God. Where does it come from? It comes from within us. That's what James is saying there. When we're tempted, we're lured away, he says, by our own desire. So whose fault is it? Is it God's? No. Is it Satan's? No. I mean, Satan may bait the hook. The world outside may bait the hook. But what pulls the hook? Why do you do the things that you shouldn't do? Why do you sin? It's your own inward lusts and desires. Notice it doesn't just say you're drawn away by lust and desires. It says your own. Your own. Each individual has their own weakness, and that's what lures them to the bait. And it's also true that one person might have a particular passion that is a temptation, that another person, it wouldn't even bother them. It's not a problem for them, but it is a problem for this person. That just shows you again, it's within us. Everyone's different. We're all different. It comes from within. And that proves that God can't be the source, because if it's coming from within us, how can it be coming from God? That's why James says each person is individually lured away by their own desires. That refers to the inclination of the soul to enjoy, to acquire something. The lust, the desire, the desire of the soul. It's us. We're the problem. God's not the problem. The world's not the problem. The devil's not the problem. We are the problem. The world, the wicked people of the world, the demons, the devil. I mean, they all surrounded Jesus when he was alive, but he didn't sin. There was nothing, you see, to put on the hook. He had no sin within him. You see, the problem is not the tempter without. The devil didn't make you do it. You know, you've heard that in the past of somebody, well, the devil made me do it. No, he didn't. The problem is not the tempter without, it's the traitor within. That's the problem for Christians. When it comes to temptation... We are the problem. We see Paul saying in Romans 7 verse 15, I do not understand my own actions. I do not do what I want, I do the very thing that I don't want to do. Paul is talking as a Christian, I do what I hate to do. I don't want to do it, but then I do it. And I hate that. I know the difference between right and wrong. I want to do right, but then I do wrong. And I didn't want to do that. 
And it's like a battle. Where's that battle coming from? He says in verse 17 and 18, It is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells within me, that is my flesh. Paul is saying, that's where it's coming from. All this turmoil, this battle that I have, it's in me. It's not coming from outside. Outside gives me the opportunity to do it. Outside will lure me. But the problem starts in my heart. It's the indwelling sin. He says in verse 18. And then he goes on in the rest of Romans 7 to emphasise, the problem is within me. It's within me, not outside. That's the problem. The problem is, even though once you become a Christian, you are redeemed. You have a new nature. You are created in Christ. You are a new creation. You still have an enemy within you, in a sense. And that enemy is your own lust, your own passion. Therefore, it's certainly not God's fault when we sin. It's not God's fault. It's our fault. Because it comes from within us. And most of lust actually is, is God's good gift twisted and perverted into sin. And for example, God gives you the, the blessing of sleep. There's nothing wrong with sleep. However, some people get very lazy and very indolent and it can become a problem. Or how about clothing? You know, God gives you clothing, it keeps you warm, keeps you dry, helps you to be covered up, which is a good thing. But, even though that's not a problem, is it? Well, actually, for some people, clothing can become a problem. And they want the best clothing, the newest clothing, the, the most expensive thing that they can't really afford, and they'll go into debt, they might even start stealing to get the better clothes that they want. And clothes can be a problem. Even things that are good. Food is good. You need to eat. But for some people, food can become a problem. It can become a problem because they'll eat too much, they become gluttonous, they become overweight, and it's a difficult physical problem then. You see, you don't even need bad things to sin. You can sin with good things. Depends on your attitude. It's all within you. You don't need Satan. You don't need the demons. You don't need the world. All you have to do is give in to that resident problem within your own heart. And sometimes, as I say, it can even be something that's good. Nothing wrong with food, nothing wrong with clothing, nothing wrong with all the things that are in the world that are, that are actually good for us. But they can become a problem. And certainly all the things that are bad, obviously, they can become a real problem for sin. So firstly, the nature of evil tells us that it's, God can't cause us to sin because he's God. Secondly, the problem is within us. And then James goes on to expand that thought that God is not the source of sin because of the nature of lust. And he goes on to discuss now how it all starts. Lust in verses 15 and 16. He says in verse 15, when lust has conceived. Now what he's doing now is telling you why you sin, where it all starts, how it happens when you do something that's wrong. And he says when it's conceived, it will eventually bring forth a child. That's obvious. That's how it works with a mother. She conceives. She'll eventually bring forth a child. Now, most people think that sin is a solitary act or a series of acts or behaviours. God is saying, no, actually, that's just the end. That's the end. Sin is the result of a long process leading up to that act. The act itself is just the final part. It starts in your thoughts. That's what James is saying. Sin starts up here. It, it's not the end process that's the, the beginning and the end. It's a long process. It begins with a thought in your mind. It begins with that feeling of wanting to be satisfied in a particular area. Or perhaps wanting to acquire something that you shouldn't have. Or perhaps wanting to acquire something that you can't afford. 
something that you want to satisfy yourself with. And desiring such things are clearly wrong. That's why it says, you know, do not covet. The reason it says do not covet in the Ten Commandments is because if you do, you've got a sin in your head immediately. You haven't actually done anything. Coveting isn't actually doing anything. It's just thinking, I want that. I can't afford it. Or it's actually wrong for me to have it. Or it's something sinful. But I still want it. I want it. You haven't actually got it yet. But you're already in a problem there because you started to think... I want it. And that's where it begins. It could even be something that's not actually wrong in the face of it. As I've already mentioned. It could be something that's quite normal. Depends. Perhaps it's something that you can't afford. Perhaps it's that bigger house that you really can't afford but you're willing to go into debt. And you're willing to perhaps even steal to get what you want. It's not wrong, that house. But you shouldn't be having it, or that particular item, or whatever it is. Or it is, could be something bad. But the point that James is making is, it begins with a thought. It begins with a longing. And then it continues. Then you get the deception. That's when you start to desire with your emotion, and you begin to justify it. You don't just say, I want that. You think, well, I want it, yes, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I don't think it's wrong to do that. I don't think it's wrong to want that. I think that's okay. I don't think that would be that bad. You still haven't done anything. But it's already started in your head. You've thought about it. You thought you want it. And now you're starting to justify it. You're being fooled. You're being drawn away. That's what it says in verse 14. That's what he's saying here. It's a long process. You're moving along. That looks good. That will satisfy me. That will meet my needs. I deserve that. You still haven't done anything, but it's growing. You want it. Lust conceived. Then we get the third point, design. Now you start to think about how you're going to get it. This occurs in the will. So you've moved on from the thought, initially that you, you know, you've seen it, then you want it, then you start to think, how are you going to get it? You've made the decision now, you're going to do it. Whether it's right, whether it's wrong, whether you should have it, whether you shouldn't have it, you've decided that you're going to get it. And you decided, how are you going to get it? It's still all in the mind. You haven't actually done anything. But your mind is now forming a plan. And that's eventually where it will go into an action. The action is when you actually do it. The sin was already there when the first thought occurred. But now you act it out. But the sin was there all the time. It's always been the sin in your mind. This is why Jesus says, if you think in your mind, then you're already sinning. You've already sinned in your mind. Because the process is going to continue and eventually you're going to do it. You've justified it in your mind. You've conceived it in your will. That's the sequence. Let me tell you something very practical then. At what point in your life do you deal with the sin? There's no point thinking, right, once I've done it, then I'll sort it out. That's too late. You've had it then. At what point do you deal with it? Not at the level of behaviour. You've got to go right back to the very beginning, to the thought. If you don't deal with it in the thought, you're probably going to do it. Whatever it is. If you don't deal with it in your thought, it's going to happen. That process is going to set off and eventually you're going to do it. Again, that's why Jesus says, if you, th- if you think it, you're as good as done it. You've already sinned. So you've got to go way back. This is why it says in Proverbs 4 verse 23, Be careful how you think, because your life is shaped by your thoughts. 
everything that you do, it all starts up here. If you can sort it out up here, if you want to stop doing something, you've got to start in your thoughts. There's nothing else that will work. So when you're dealing with sin in your life, you don't deal with the end of the line. Because it's too late. You've got to go right back to the beginning. To your emotions, to your thoughts. That's where it begins. To get more practical now, in other words, what you've got to do, you've got to control your mind. Because it's your mind where all sin starts. And that means on a practical level, you've got to be careful about what you let into your minds. You've got to be careful about what you watch on the television. You've got to be careful about what you listen to on the radio. You've got to be careful about what you read in books, or magazines, or newspapers. Because if it's wrong, you've already got it in your mind. You've got to deal with your emotions. You cannot expose your mind and your emotions continually to the things of this world without paying a high price. It will lead to sin. You need the mind of Christ. You need a renewed mind. You need to set your mind, as it says in God's word, of things above, not on the things on earth. You need to saturate your mind with the word of Christ, dwelling in it richly, the Bible tells us. In other words, you need to saturate your mind with the Bible. Paul says in Romans 12 verse 2, we need the mind that is transformed, not conformed to the world. You need to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. That's why it says that. And if your mind feeds on the word of God, then you can stop sin right back at the very beginning before it even actually starts the process. You've got to start with your emotions, you've got to start with your thoughts. And it, you can't expose them to everything that the world is throwing at you. If your mind isn't saturated with the word of God and prayer, then you will firstly conceive sin in your mind, the process will start, and eventually there will be an action and an action then can form a habit, and a habit can form a lifestyle. And then you're doing it all the time, whatever it is. James says in verse 16, stop being led astray, stop being deceived. Know where the problem is, don't be deceived about this. Stop blaming God, start blaming yourself, and start looking within yourself. You're the reason that you sin, you can't blame other people. Therefore, to able to overcome that you've got to find where the problem is the problem starts within you and it starts with your thoughts you can't expose your mind to everything the world throws at you you can't let your mind become captive to those things you've got to know where the problem is that's all James is telling you the problem is it's up here you've got to accept that that's why I've said in the past it's no good to be entertained by watching people sin there's so many rubbish programs on the television and it's getting worse, and um, the sexual scenes, the foul language. It says in Ephesians 5 verse 3 and 4 that I've said many times before, since you are God's people, it is not right that any matters of sexual immorality, on decency or greed should even be mentioned among you. Nor is it fitting for you to use language which is obscene, profane or vulgar. Rather, you should give thanks to God. Now it's saying there that you shouldn't even mention these things, let alone be entertained by watching them on the television. You shouldn't be using that language, you shouldn't be entertaining yourself with those things. Not even mentioned, certainly rules out watching or reading about them. Instead, fill your mind with the things of God, spend more time in prayer, spend more time in God's word. If your mind and emotions are controlled, you can nip these things in the bud before they even start, before they're even conceived. 
So that's the nature of evil, the nature of man and the nature of lust. There's another proof actually that it says that the nature of God. Verse 17, James also says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with which whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. What James is saying there, that's really the heart of the passage is, there's no way that God would be tempting you to sin, because every good thing and every perfect thing comes from him. He only wants to give you good things. He doesn't want to give you bad things. And if he wants to only give you good things, why would he tempt you to do bad things? It's not even logical. All good things come from God. Of course he wouldn't tempt you to sin. The nature of God is that he only ever produces good. He would never produce evil. That's why Jesus says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. Because God wants to give you good things. He doesn't want to give you bad things. He doesn't want you to sin. It's bad for you. You're going to hurt yourself. You're going to damage yourself. You're going to damage your soul. Don't do it. And finally, the fifth proof that God is not responsible for temptation, therefore sin, is the nature of regeneration. He goes on to say in verse 18, By his own will he begot us, and the word of truth, that we should be the first fruits of his creation. In other words, God couldn't tempt us to sin because he's regenerated us to be like him. That's the whole point. He's created us to be like him. And he doesn't sin. He doesn't tempt us to do evil. He recreates us to do good. So who's to blame in our sin? We really need to know it if we're going to deal with it. And the answer is, we are. Accept responsibility, in other words. If you can accept responsibility, you're halfway there. And then, start with the mind. Don't think about it to begin with. Don't expose yourself to a lot of the things that the world is exposing. It's throwing at you the rubbish that comes out. Don't let that get in. Augustine, um, the Christian of many, many years ago, great Christian leader, uh, once before he became a Christian, lived with a, a, a prostitute. And uh, after he was saved, he was walking down the street and this lady saw him and she kept shouting out to him, shouting out his name. And he just kept on walking. He saw her, he knew she was there, but he just kept walking. She continued to shout, and finally she said, Augustine, Augustine, it's me. And he said, yeah, I know, but I'm no longer me. Once we're saved, in other words, we become a new creation. We are God's own possession. And we have in this, this new creation that allows us to overcome evil in our lives. But it all starts, James is telling us here, it all starts in the mind. If you start there, that's the only way that you're going to overcome it. Let's come to God in prayer. Father, we thank you that you teach us so practically and you help us in so many ways. You've given us your word. You've given us people like James who wrote down exactly what you wanted us to know. And we thank you, Lord, that by the power of your Holy Spirit and your word and in our lives, we can live the way that you want us to live, which is for our own good. It's not that you're dictatorial in the sense that you want us to do things that are bad for us. You only want good for us. And when you tell us that we shouldn't be doing this or we shouldn't be doing that, it's, it's for our benefit. And we thank you for that. We thank you that you have our best interests at heart. Help us therefore to be careful about what we let into our minds, to be careful about what we think about, to be careful about what we watch, what we read, what we hear, and also to saturate our minds in good, your word, 
in prayer, in fellowship with you. And we thank you that as a result of that we can worship and glorify you as our Lord and our God. Amen.